Welcome back to The Enemies List. I'm Rick Wilson. Our guest today is Simon Rosenberg. Simon is one of the smartest guys out there on the Democratic side of the political fence. He's the founder of the New Democratic Network and the New Policy Institute. He is also someone who has a really phenomenal grasp of public and political campaign polling. Simon's going to join us today to take apart some of the red wave mythology. Uh, He's going to join us to talk about early turnout and early voting. And we're going to decide if this election is a red wave, a red ripple, or something very, very different. Thanks for joining us on the enemies list. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson. And this is the enemies list. So, Simon, you are one of the smartest observers of both polling and of some of the electoral turnout questions that we have out there. And it is something on everyone's mind. So Election Day is moments away when you folks are hearing this. And I'm very curious at your take right now. There is a large perception in the media world and in in the minds of some of the, the, the public that we are due for an absolute crushing red tidal wave that is going to destroy the Democratic Party for a thousand generations. <laughs> What's your take on where the polling stands, where the early early voter turnout stuff stands? And we'll go through some of the key states here after we get a sort of 30,000 foot view from you. I mean, the critical thing about when you look at data um, is that, you know, you know you have a trend when everything's pointing in the same direction. And everything is not pointing in the same direction. And this is really important. Right. And let me let me go through it with you, Rick. And I know you know this, right? Is that first of all, the you know, so I the way I've been describing this is that we all knew the Republicans were going to have a strong turnout. The question would be, to me, the most important question is, was the Democratic overperformance, the unexpected over overperformance of the Democratic Party that we saw in Kansas and the five house specials. Would it carry mm-hmm. over to the general election? And so far, what we're seeing is it is. We know from the early vote that we're outperforming our 2020 numbers in almost every major state in the country in what is a very, very heavy early vote. We're, we're likely to now see we're running above 2018, which was the uh, highest turnout midterm in 100 years. We're actually seeing more votes than 2018. So this is a very high turnout midterm again. This will be the second consecutive one. And Democrats are beating Republicans all over the country. Republic- Democrats are above their 2020 numbers. Republicans are below their 2020 numbers. So this idea that the Republican base was more energized to vote is not, is not what we're seeing actually in real voting with tens of millions of people all across the country. Um, and, and so it leaves as Democrats, this is our most optimistic set of data that we're looking at because we just didn't know, Rick. We just didn't know if this was going to happen. And it's happening and it's been happening over 10 days. And in fact, over the last few days, things have even gotten better for Democrats. The second thing is that the congressional generic polling, which is a lot of where the red wave story is coming from, Mm -hmm. is actually much more mixed. Matthew Dow just tweeted this out, um, you know, that in fact, a, uh, you know, of the 12 congressional generics done in the last week and a half, eight have Democrats either even or ahead. So this notion that they're all moving in one direction is not true. 
there have just been some very high profile ones, right, that showed movement, which has been seized on mm -hmm. by the right wing, you know, echo chamber, right? The third thing is we've seen very good polling in the Senate races themselves. In almost every Senate race, when you strip away the partisan polling and just look at the independent polling, Democrats are running again ahead of 2020, right? We're overperforming expectations. You know, we're up by a couple points. These are all going to be very close races. I mean, I, no one really knows. And we're at a point where the precision of polling can't really tell us exactly where things are. They're just really close. But I talked to someone involved in the Senate races just a few minutes ago, and they feel Democrats feel good. They think they've even got a shot to win Georgia outright and not have it go into a runoff. I mean, there isn't a panic going on in the Senate races. And we also had very good polls with Hispanics and young people just in the last few days. Univision had a slew of polls in the Southwest that were all very promising for us. And then the Harvard IOP had a very strong you know, poll for us as well. The last thing I want to say before we get into the conversation, and Rick, you're going to enjoy this, I think, is that it's not what a party says, it's what they do. And Mitch McConnell just announced in his final ad buy um, that he's ending by spending lots of money in North Carolina and Ohio. That is not a sign that there's a red wave. Right. That's a sign that this is a competitive election, that he's having to spend to protect you know, Republican-held seats. And we also heard that Trump is now going to Iowa to try to buck up Chuck Grassley. So the Republicans are using you know, valuable dollars and time in these end days to um, you know, go to places like Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina. That is not a sign that they believe this thing is in the bag. Because if it was a red wave, they would be going all in offense. And they would be going into Arizona and New Hampshire. Yeah, I think they were trying to head fake for for a few weeks there, a few days there, saying, "Oh, we're going all in in Colorado. We're going all in in Washington State," and, and that was sort of to distract from the fact that you know you're still having. I mean, Tim Ryan, I think, is running the best Democratic campaign in the country in a very deep red state. Um, but the fact that they're having to plunge into JD Vance there a little bit, I, I do I do think says something. Um, and I think they've been. I think they. I think they counted on. I mean, the the colossal amount of money spent in Georgia for no impact on, on either side. Honestly, um, I think yeah. they. I think they're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try to to get the Ted Bud seat protected, um, and, and and let the chips fall fall where they may in Georgia, and hope that uh, and hope that the, yeah. the that Kemp drags Herschel over the line. Um, and I do think, you know, I had a, a question I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of where we cover polling these days as, as where reporters cover polling these days comes out of the assessments of these polling aggregation um, models, you know, 538 <laughs> and Real Clear and all these others, the New York Times that do these different models. In some ways, I, I may, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. It almost feels to me like the Republicans with this flood of fairly low quality but noisy polls in the last 10 days, it almost feels like they've learned how to hack that system. Listen, this is a really serious issue for all of us political nerds that's happened is that there's an active measure campaign uh, executing, being executed by the Republican Party over the last three weeks to game and yep. corrupt the polling averages. There's no question. I mean, you could, I mean, it's, and, and it, anyone who denies this is happening is just being dishonest. I mean, it's on a massive scope and scale. And even today, I went and looked at a bunch of states and almost every one of these polls from a polling outfit, because one of the reasons Democrats aren't releasing polls is because we're using them to win the elections. We don't have all these organizations out right. there that have the bandwidth to be doing lots of polling a week before an election. The Republicans have created this whole new category of polling firms that don't seem to actually be involved in the elections themselves, but are there 
just to create low quality, noisy polls to push the polling averages. And what's interesting is if you go and look, almost every one of these polls, state after state after state, is between 46 and 48 Mm percent. I mean, there's this ban. They've been given a memo. They've been told what to produce in terms of the results. And it's had a huge impact because what's happening now in the national media is that the, the central reason we're now talking about a red wave is the Republican hacking or gaming of the polling averages. And, um, and what's disappointing to me, Rick, is that some of these very well-paid and very well-known you know, national political commentators haven't called BS on this process. They should have been the ones saying, hey, look, we don't really trust this anymore. We know what's going on here. We can see it. But it took me, frankly, just a few days ago to be the guy that kind of outed this campaign. And I think it's had a really big impact on the election because I think now what's happening is that there's a chorus of media organizations saying the race has shifted a few points. There's a red wave. And what's amazing is if there was a red wave, we'd be seeing it in the early vote data. And in the last few days, actually, things have gotten better for Democrats, right? <laughs> and so it's just it's just a tra- it's a sh- it's a shame that we weren't more collectively on top of what was going on here earlier, because it means that they're going to get away with it basically up until election day. I think that I think in a lot of places they've gotten away with it and basically, you know, taken the air out of the balloons of Democratic campaigns around the country. But you mentioned early voting, and this is the this is the uh, 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 an actual empirical indicator in a lot of these states of what's happening. Most states, as you said, it's yep. been very good. A few states not as good. Florida not as good. Yep. Um, yep. That's that's looking like a you know, and Florida is my home state, and you know, I helped back in my in my misspent youth helped build the system that destroyed the Democratic Party of Florida. <laughs> Honest answer, um, and they they cannot yep. organize their way out of a paper sack or or get, or put a two car motorcade together. So, but other than that, we're seeing amazing turnout numbers in in a lot of these states, and and interestingly, also from the, it's been over over represented uh, on the women on the female vote. Uh, and I wonder, just hoping you could talk about that a little bit about what we're seeing in the early numbers and in the demographics of the early numbers. Yeah, I mean, the one way to think about this election is that this election was actually not nationalized. It's kind of an interesting thing. There really are, in my view right now, three separate elections. There's the elections in the, in the, in the Senate races, where Democrats went up really early, have spent unbelievable amounts of money, have built huge field organizations. And in those states, the early vote, we are doing 10 to 15 to 20 points better than we were in 2020. You can see the numbers. I mean, it's incredible uh, how far ahead. In Michigan, we're 25 points ahead of where we were in 2020 at this point in terms of our share. And that's translating into hundreds, hundreds of thousands of votes, right? I mean, we're, you know, John Ralston talks all the time about the firewall. The master. Today, Democrats... Democrats have three and a half million more votes than we had at this point in 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, three, our margin at this point in 2018, Republicans had more votes than we did. In this election, at this point, we have almost three and a half million more votes. So our firewall is in the millions and millions. And in some of the states, it's even, you know, it's just incredible, right? So there's one election that's happening in the Senate states where we've controlled the information environment. We've built massive field organizations that are, for the first time, Democrats are executing against the early vote opportunities. As you know, Rick, we always went election day. You guys went early, right? And so we've changed the way that we do 
field and GOTV to accommodate. And for your listeners, what's really important to know about why right. having big numbers in the early vote matters, it means that we're spending the last week talking to lower propensity voters and not to our prime voters. Whereas Republicans are going to be talking you know, to their, uh, to their lower propensity voters. The second election is happening in places like New York and Rhode Island and Oregon and California, places where the MAGA threat is not very present. And you're seeing lower democratic performance in some of those democratic states. It's kind of an interesting development. And then the third is this sort of set of states in the Midwest um, and Texas where MAGA is a threat, where abortion is under is under siege and where you know, you're seeing, in some cases, Democrats overperforming uh, in places, you know, like Nebraska right now. We're seeing very strong performance from Democrats in Texas. Beto's early vote looks very strong. And so it, it's I think there are, the way to think about this election is that the early vote is very, very strong all across the country for Democrats, except in Florida, as you pointed out, and in a handful of traditionally very blue states where you know the, the MAGA threat is not imminent and where Republicans may actually have a better ex- than expected election. Yeah, the stakes feel lower. And I think that's why Republicans have, have tried yes, to play exactly in some right. of those California congressional seats because they know there's not yep. a top of the ticket intensity driver in the state. And they're going to try to right. go and run fairly bespoke, small bore, handcrafted campaigns in those districts and, uh, and, and push through. Yes, exactly right. Yep. So and, and I think some, also the last thing I'll yeah. say is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, my, my, my next part of the, the early voting question was the demographics of it look to be more heavily female than we saw in 18 or in 20. And in 18, we had a, a fairly female early vote, uh, but it looks like it's it's more intense than it was even in, in, in either of the last two cycles. In some states more than others, right? It depends. But certainly, mm-hmm. you know, part of what's the big question, I think, for us now as Democrats is what happens with young voters. I mean, the, the Harvard sure. Institute of Politics poll last week said that young voters were going to vote at a rate equal to 2018 or better, which was a huge youth turnout midterm. And also Democrats had a 25 point lead in that poll, which would be significant. You've started to see in the last couple days, the youth share of the vote start to increase. You're starting to see it. It's not enough mm-hmm. for Democrats to feel satisfied about. Um, and and with women, you're right. I mean, there is, I mean, what's interesting is um, some of the drop off with women in some of the states is because Republican women are down, right. not, not all women, you know, and they are also seeing that with youth in some of the states as well, is that young people are down, but Democratic youth are actually holding okay. Um, listen, this is an unbelievably close election, and and I and I think that um, you know all anything that anybody can do who wants to help Democrats win is that you know just phone calls, texting, all the things that we all do. It all it all really matters because this thing could come down sure. to a hand, again, once again, right to a handful of votes in a few states to determine the outcome of the election. Simon, which of the states are you watching most closely right now? Because there, there's a theory of the case that you know, Republicans used to win the early and now they win election day. Which of the states are you watching right. to make sure that we get the same the turnout they need on election day, that we haven't cannibalized the early vote or the or the election day vote for the early vote? Uh, because and I asked that question. Yeah, because... I want to. No, I want to I want to address the cannibalization concept. Right. Because I, I think this is out there and I think that. I have a slightly different take on it is I think what happens in these early in the early vote is that 
you know, when you get a lot of your regular voters out to vote early, you then can take these massive campaigns and focus on the lower propensity voters. And so what really happens in these right. campaigns is by getting a big early vote, you're actually increasing your turnout. And I think we're actually seeing that in the Democratic campaigns right now. And it's one of the reasons why you've seen a seize really hard on this idea that we want people to vote early. This has been a major communications from you know, our campaigns because then it allows us to spend the last five or six days focusing on lower propensity voters and, and increasing our overall turnout. So far, that seems to be working. And so, I, you know, very encouraged by that, Rick. What I would say is the states, again, where we're doing unbelievably well, and again, and you know this, that when we see very strong performance, it also is a test of the organizational strength of the campaigns, right? And sure. where we're seeing very, very strong performance, sort of outside what would be, you know, the upper end of what was possible. We're seeing that in Georgia, in Ohio, in Michigan, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, and in Wisconsin are the states where we're doing, you know, way beyond what I think any of us thought we would be doing at this point. And that's because that's where we built these really massive campaigns. The DNC spent over $50 million building out an unprecedented level, you know, field operation to take advantage of the early right. vote opportunities. Where you're also seeing a lot of strength in the early vote are uh, places like Texas, frankly. I mean, Better O'Rourke's numbers are getting better every day. We know that he has a volunteer base of 100,000 people. And also, just in the last few days, North Carolina, Arizona, and Washington State got much better. And I think that that's because in those states, our, our field operation is kicking in, right? And you, I mean, this is what's so interesting about looking at this data every day, is that you can see a campaign change the electorate, right? You can actually see the evolution of these things. And Arizona, Washington, and North Carolina each improved their standing by five or six points in the last just few days. It's kind of incredible, actually, because I was worried about all three of those states. Now they're actually over 2020 in their performance, which is where we want to be. So one place to look at is there is some, in the last few days, the Nevada numbers went south a little bit for us. Mm -hmm. We'll see if that continues. It's not, it doesn't mean we're going to lose. It's just we're in a less strong position than we were. I still think we're going to pull it out there because the Culinary Union, which is the most powerful field organization in the state, has more money and bigger organization than it's ever had. And I think that's going to really kick in. Yeah, I think I think Nevada is, um, as Ralston pointed out the other day, you know, they, they may be slow to report. I mean, we had a, a couple of days where it looked like nobody was voting early and then the, that tranche of yeah. 18,000 yeah. came in and then da 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 da, da. Yeah. So... <laughs> I, I do think I still have Arizona on my really on my list of very high concern. I think Haiti Hobbs made a really f yep. unforced error to, to avoid actually campaigning against Kerry Lake. Um, but I, 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 yes, you're correct. The numbers the last few days have started to tilt a little better in um, in early. And look, I think that there's a certain number of like Maricopa Republican women that that may have seen Kerry Lake on their TV, but as you know, she's campaigning with guys like Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk and the crazies yeah. and, and getting further and further out there because she felt confident she was going to win. She's been, I think, a lot more on the edge. So there may be a little a little ray of sunshine there. And I, I also think you're absolutely right about North Carolina has really become the sleeper out there. Yeah. Um, North Carolina and, and, and the Iowa race. I mean, Chuck Grassley, um, he, he slept on the Admiral. And that is that is... That has closed up hard. I don't know if it's possible still. It's still, you know, a, a, a pretty red state. But 
I think there's a certain like amount of road weariness about Grassley and and Republicans. You're right; they've had to flood the zone with resources in the last couple of days. So the early vote in Iowa is almost 20 points higher than it was at this point in 2020. I mean, it's sort of a crazy number. I mean, we're seeing, you know, this is what I mean. This whole idea that's in the media that the Democrats are sort of dying and there's a massive red wave. It's just not, I mean, as I've been writing in my own work the last couple of days, maybe there's going to be a red wave, but it didn't show up in the House specials. It didn't show up in Kansas. Kansas. It didn't show up in the voter registration data. It didn't show up in the early vote data. It's not showing up in the Senate polling. And maybe there's going to be a red wave, but it hasn't happened yet. You know, Simon, there was a there was one person the other day. But I was doing another interview, and he said, "Well, you know, Dobbs peaked too early." And my argument there is, I don't think it did. I think Dobbs drove a big wave of voter registration for young women, and yeah, and I think I don't think we modeled them very well yet because it's so they're such a new cohort. Um, but I think that I think Kansas was the proof case of that, and I'm really interested to yep. see how that plays out. I don't, I, like I said, I don't have a lot of empirical evidence about it except that we saw these big surges in female voter registration around the country uh, in the late summer. Yeah. And what you're seeing in, in the early vote and just the uptick in the last few days among young people, it's mostly among women. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's, you know, we have enough data to show that. And I, and I think that, you know, you're, I, listen, I think this abortion sort of petered out or whatever you want to call it story is so ridiculous. I mean, I just went and looked at navigator um, with their final poll mm-hmm. before the election, a, a strong and smart democratic yep, polling yep. outfit that has, you know, a, a polling every people. two weeks. Yeah, they're serious people. And when you break out the most important issue question into party, right? The you know inflation and abortion were the two top right. issues for Democrats. They aren't abortion is not a big issue for Republicans. And so what happened is the national averages it came down, right. but in the, in the among the Democratic universe that we're speaking into. This is still as intense an issue as inflation in the final week. And it's just, it was, it's been disappointing to me, Rick, and you've been in this game for a long time, right? Is that how we're at a point now where the noisiness of the, of the right wing, yep. you know, machine allows them to take any kind of crazy meme, like the fentanyl meme, right. you know, and just blow it up into a thing that we then have to spend weeks debunking, um, you know, as it spreads through the ecosystem, this yeah. issue of the abortion receding as an issue was one of those, you know, BS memes that had no real data behind it. And it's unfortunate because I think it actually, um, I think it was an inaccurate close for the media. And, and the media has got to do a better job here. I mean, I am, I, you know, you and I have been dealing with these guys Long time. for decades, right? <laughs> Long time. They, the political media has not had a good cycle this has not been a good cycle for election and political media. There's no. Well, I mean, question. look, especially because you know we went from we went from if if you'd ask the average political reporter in the spring what's going to happen, they would say uh, it's going to be 2010 or it's going to be 1994. Yeah. The Republicans are going to win 60 seats, and nobody's saying that now. They they really right. they, they really take the bait very 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 easily from a lot of things that I think are fairly spurious indicators. Well, and can we just, that's a great way to, it just needs to be mentioned that the fact that Democrats are in this thing at all at this right. point is incredible. An off-year election and, in a terrible, know, in a terrible inflation cycle, in a, in a, yeah. in a, in a high gas price regime. I mean, there's a lot here that, that really, you know, at, you, you would think that, that, that springtime scenario that Republicans having a, having a year a 94 or a 2010, yeah. um, yep. you know. And it doesn't look that way. I mean, I 
No, look, it's very close. And it's incredible to me that we're in this thing this late. Glass half full, you know, it's in part because we've had really strong campaigns. We've had good candidates. um, And, you know, we've hustled our ass off. I mean, we've taken this really seriously and people have worked really hard to make this thing close. You know, what's going to happen? Well, voters are going to tell us in the next couple of days what's happened. But, you know, I'd still rather be us than them in this final home stretch. I I think that's right. And I think that there's, um, you know, redistricting aside, um, you know, Republicans in the House, they've run some good campaigns out there. But I do think it's a crapshoot. And, and and the data is so noisy because of so much junk being pumped into the system that tomorrow is going to be a hell of a day, folks. So stay tuned. And just remember, everybody, I've said this before. I'll say it again. On election night, you will see the same red mirage that we saw in 2020. They will say, OK, well, the, the, the same day vote is in. And before any absentee or early votes are counted, especially in places like Pennsylvania, they're going to declare victory. And, you know, it's not going to be that way. We think these early votes, uh, and as Simon has pointed out very ably today, I think we're in a situation where the early vote is going to be a, a very strong factor in this. And uh, and we'll see tomorrow. Yeah. And, and Rick, I just want to end with that is that, you know, it is, I become more convinced in recent days that there could be a scenario where the House and Senate Republicans declare that the two chambers have flipped, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And that's going to create some interesting dynamics, uh, you know, for yeah. the media and for all responsible actors, um, because we just don't want to go through what happened in 2020 all over again. And it's why, you know, what I'm doing really hard here is I'm closing out by trying to remind journalists and everybody that, you know, the early vote really matters here. And it shows that the Democrats can win, that we're in this thing. There isn't a, a red wave may come, but it hasn't come yet. And, you know, this is going to be a very close election. Absolutely. Well, Simon, where can folks follow you on the social media? Yeah, I'm at SimonWDC on Twitter. I tweet way too much. Happy to admit that. <laughs> and that's probably the best way to be in touch with me. And, uh, you know, I I'm, I love Twitter, but I'm a little nervous about Elon. And we'll see what happens after the election. Well, Simon, thank you so very much for coming on with us today. Yeah. We really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And uh, we will have you back after the election wraps up. And uh, we'll, we'll take this thing apart and see where we were right and where we were wrong. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Rick, thank you. And thanks for all that you do. All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, joining me right now is my good friend and Lincoln Project co-founder and one of the smartest observers of America's insane political scene, Reed Galen. Reed, great to have you on the show. No, thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. You know, we have been active uh, across the country this year uh, in, in a bunch of these key states for democracy. Um, but I think America right now is having a, a kind of restless weekend. They don't know quite what to believe, quite what to feel uh, about where the, the elections stand, what we're looking at on Tuesday night and and, and on into the days to follow. Uh, and I was hoping to get your take on about whether there'll be a red wave or not on Tuesday. Uh, well, let me say I joined the American people in uh, their unease. Uh, Rick, as you know, we're now in the uh, it's all over, but the crying phase of the campaign. Um, If you have money, you've spent it. If you've cut an ad, you've run it. Um, It's now up to the volunteers uh, and Providence to make sure that the good guys and gals out there win. And so what's going to happen on tomorrow? I'm not sure. Uh, And, you know, you and I both been doing this a long time. And 
you know, every every year I say it couldn't be weirder and every year it is. And I think that, you know, we're in this weird tug of war, Rick, I think, uh, amongst Americans between the forces of, you know, what we would call Trumpism or whatever, just pounding all the negative messages in Democrats holding their own. Right. I mean, Rick, as you probably said on the show before, three times in the last 122 years has a first term president picked up seats in yep their their first midterm democrats should be getting blown out <clears throat> and maybe they will hell i don't know but i'll say this is that uh right now a lot of these a lot of these races are within the margin of error which i think is good news for democrats but it's also i think bad news for the country writ large that you have people like dr oz and herschel walker and blake masters you know as close as they are to being senators elect you know on tuesday night or wednesday yeah, I think that's right, Reed. And I think that there's a degree of that uncertainty in part. Some of it, as we talked with Simon Rosenberg today, um, is sort of created anxiety where the Republicans are just so much better at flooding the zone with polls and and stories and media in the closing days of the election that it certainly looks like, you know, it, they, they've, they've certainly set the bar really high unless they deliver a big blowout on on Tuesday night. It's also important to look sort of holistically back at this campaign. What you just said is really important. If you poked us, you know, eight months ago, 10 months ago, a year ago, and said, I would have told you the Republicans would have picked up 60 House seats that <laughs> we, we thought that for a while, 1994 for sure. or 2010. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, a year ago, um, Rick, you know, but, we were down, in, we were down in your neck of the woods seeing folks, supporters and, and others. Mm -hmm. And remember, that a year ago we had to convince people that no, there were 12 months to go to the campaign and that no, you cannot give up a year out. Um, and I think people largely right. haven't. I feel like that like a week ago, a lot of Democrats and democratic supporters started panicking um, to your point about the Republicans being yes. able to just drive that message and pound and pound and pound and pound and repeat. I feel like some of that has come back to center line. Um, and I think that's good news. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I think that you see, I think Nevada is going to be very, very close. Wisconsin is going to be very, very close um, as far as those governor's yeah. races and those Senate races are concerned. Arizona is far too close in either the Senate race or the Arizona race to make me feel better. I, I listen candidly. I feel good about the governor's races in Michigan with Gretchen Whitmer and um, and Pennsylvania with Josh Shapiro. And if you have not seen the 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 speech that Shapiro gave on Sunday night or excuse me on Friday Saturday oh. night I guess Saturday um, yeah. it, it was a uh, it was a master class in how you respond to authoritarian movements I think that's exactly right and I think uh, and I'll, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll eventually get show notes going on this folks but if you haven't seen it yet look up Josh Shapiro rally speech from Saturday and it is it is a masterful comeback to a lot of the fake and and structural propaganda approaches to the republicans where they're out there saying you know this election is because you know crime is worse than it's ever been it takes it apart tick 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 goes right through it i think it's it's a really meritorious speech there's been some actually you know some pretty impressive rhetoric out of out of uh, shapiro uh, some even out of whitmer who was not who was who was considered a good candidate but not a, an amazing speaker she's had some amazing hits lately you know and in the face of you know let's be honest we have to give our democratic friends a little tough love right now you know, you, you have uh katie hobbs out in arizona basically i don't know where she's at hiding in a bunker or something 
um, letting Carrie Lake uh, sort of run away with it out there uh, in terms of, of dominating the earned media space. I mean, I think we're going to learn some lessons this year. And I, and I want to say, see what, get your take on this. I think the number one lesson is going to be, you know, like on all, all sides and all ways, candidate quality matters. Sure. And you have to find the right people that, in the right fit. And, and maybe Democrats, sometimes that right fit isn't the celebrity candidate. Well, I mean, it's it's not only the candidate quality matters, but campaigns matter, too, but matter on the margins. Right. And so if you've got a good candidate with a crappy campaign, um, Mm -hmm. 50 50 chance they're going to lose. And if you have a bad candidate with a very good campaign, you know, it'll keep them in the fight. Um, You know, bad candidates and bad campaigns lose almost universally unless it's so gerrymandered a district. It doesn't matter. Um, But I think that Hobbs is a good example of. what Rick, you said in a Twitter thread you had uh, over the weekend of in 2015 thinking, oh, she Carrie Lake's so crazy, she can't possibly win the win the primary, mm-hmm. or even worse yet, she's the one we want to face in the fall because she's so nutty. Well, look, you you don't have to like these people, and you can be worried about their worst intentions. And with someone like Carrie Lake, you should, and understand that they have a unique talent for what politics is now, Rick, which is frankly performance art. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, speaking of performance art, we're going to end up in in the next God knows how many days after the election with a lot of performance art in the in what Republicans specialize in, which is voter fraud kabuki mm-hmm. and post-election kabuki. Can you prepare our listeners a little bit, read what you see coming in close races around the country um, and why it's so corrosive and dangerous about about the, the contestation of the races to come in the next few days. Sure. I mean, I think that one is um, you speaking of Carrie Lake, you know, she said, I can question the government. I can question elections. That's my first amendment, right? You can question the government. Every, every citizen, uh, every resident of a democracy yep. has that, that right. Questioning elections is, I guess you could do it right, but you shouldn't. Um, I think that you saw Rick Grinnell, who's this goon who's just hung around long enough to keep getting these jobs with the Trumps of the world, um, you know, said every every vote that isn't counted on Tuesday should just be thrown out. And so, Rick, what's going to happen is now, especially because so many. Well, first of all, all 50 states have always had different rules. In fact, that's enshrined in the Constitution. Right. States get to run their rate, their elections the way they want to run them. Um, but, you know, you, you add COVID mm-hmm. into that where so many rules were changed to accommodate the fact that so many people didn't want to go to a, a physical polling place uh, in either the primary or the general of 2020. So, uh, you know, you, you're going to have many more mail-in ballots in a lot of places than you've had. And in a lot of places, there are there is a law that says that you cannot even if you have hundreds of thousands or, you know, a couple of million mail ballots in hand. You cannot begin counting those until the polls have closed on Election Day. So what happens is, is that they go into a vault or whatever. Right. And they sit there and they usually actually get counted last. So they came in first, but they'll get counted last. So all the Election Day, you know, they'll be Mm -hmm. tallying as they go, tallying as they go, tallying as they go. And that's when you start to see, you know, on the news and everybody will have their specials, you know, the the returns start to come in. And then what we saw, Rick, in 2020 is the same thing I think we're likely to see now, which is if Republicans repeat what they did, which is they have a stronger election day showing than Democrats. But Democrats had 
far better early voting and mail-in voting participation, then you're going to see a Republican lead in some of these places that will, as, as the evening goes and even as the week goes, erode. And it is in that period, Rick, in those days from, from Wednesday at dawn until whenever the final count you know, or whenever there's a there's a determination about somebody won, that's where this, you know, the, the hijinks will occur, because if it's a Republican losing, they're going to say, well, look, they're stealing it from me again. And Trump's going to say they're stealing it from us again. So, Reed, the next big factor, I think that people need to be aware of. And I think they I think this weekend has given them a preview. And um, it's that Donald Trump is is very, very close now to announcing his return to the national political scene. Um, you know, this weekend he went to war with with Ron DeSanctimonious, as he called him, which I don't think is his A right. game of insults, by the way. Prepare people for, for what's going to happen to our politics and our media and our social media, in your mind, either this week or, or, or late this week, mid this week, maybe tomorrow. Who knows when Donald Trump announces he's back and running for president again in 2024? Oh, God, Rick, it'll be this is going to be the third time. This is his third time running for president. Think about that. I mean, it's enough already, certainly. Um, I mean, you know, you you, you made a note about the, his sort of half-assed nickname for DeSantis. I, I think you're right. I think the more important thing is that he did it, and that you know you see some of the what do you what do you call them? The cruise ship conservatives are now like, no, right. Ron DeSantis is really the future, really, really the future, and Donald Trump shouldn't do this, and Donald Trump should step aside. And I'm like. I mean, you know, Rick, they just they just can't get over it. They just cannot. It, it, the, it's, 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 not, like 20... it's not their party. They don't nope. they don't they don't get it. They don't want to get it. And for some reason, they think that even if the party, you know, if Trump went away, that somehow anybody would want these assholes to be part of running it. <laughs> right. I said, you know, you, you said this one time and it was, it was absolutely perfect. And it's like, what makes you people think that they're going to ever let people like us back in the room? Why they're, would they we ever want to go back? And, and right, and why would we ever want to go back? It's like they have this—they have this sense now that that the the responsible adults um, who used to run the Republican Party at some point in the distant past um, are a greater threat to them than the Democrats. And so, why would they ever? Why would any of these people ever think that Trump wasn't going to run? And furthermore, that he wasn't going to go like a like a like a a shredder through every one of these guys. I mean, DeSantis, DeSantis is the one who was the most prominent, the the biggest mojo, I think, right now with the uh, with the money class. Right. Um, but you'll see them, I think, one by one drop off. Well, you yeah, saw- I mean, DeSantis's yeah. other problem is that he's just not very good either. Um, right. You know, OK, yeah. Being, you know, being governor of Florida is a big deal. OK, well, Jeb Bush was governor of Florida. Yeah. Right. Marco Rubio was Speaker of the House yeah. and a U.S. Rick Senate. Scott was governor of Florida. He's not going to be president either. Right. <laughs> so like um, like that's great. Right. All sorts of people are governors of big states. Doesn't make them ready for prime time. And I think that if look, Rick, you and I talked about this, um, I think, on a phone call last week that if Ron DeSantis couldn't comport himself, you know, against Charlie Crist, like right. good luck against Trump. I mean, and just before we get to what he, his reentrance means, I mean, Trump. I guarantee you sat there with his super TV TiVo and watched that debate performance over and over and over again. Said, I got this guy's number. I got this yeah, guy's it, number. It, he he doesn't have a chance. And and right. you know what? The rest of the rat pack saw it too. Everybody mm-hmm. saw it. It's mm-hmm. just like the the anti anti Trump people don't wanna um don't want to admit it. Right. And there there's there's still that vestigial thing in their head that's like, 
well, I can get the Republican Party back if, 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 and they, they build up this chain of like contingencies in their head on how, you know, Trump could lose or die or be eaten by a wolf or something could happen. And then, you know, Yunkin or DeSantis becomes the future. No, people, no. Carrie Lake's already lapping Ron DeSantis in the minds of a lot of MAGA voters. The crazier they are, the better for them in the MAGA universe. Yeah, and I think that's why you've seen the Yunkins of the world, you know, who's a who's a MAGA in a Mitt Romney vest, right? Go out and support people like Blake Masters Absolutely. and Adam Laxalt and Carrie Lake and all these other people because he knows he needs he needs he needs a taste of that ultra MAGA to have a future. Yeah. Um, the truth is, though, is that the future, the current, the the present, and the future is at this moment Donald Trump. And so, yeah, you know, he teased in a in a rally over the weekend that maybe on. Tuesday night um, that, you know, he'd have something to say, um, although the news reports, as you've probably pointed out, you know, said it's going to be the week of the 14th. But of course, he never saw, a, you know, a well laid plan that he wasn't ready to, to stomp all over just because he felt like doing it. Um, right, and so, yeah, right. look, you know, it's going to be, you know, if he gives us till Monday next, I would I would appreciate it. But we should assume it'll be Tuesday night. Um, and we'll be right mm-hmm. back in it. And the fight, you know, and I'll t- uh, let me just say this for all the folks who are, you know, big fans of Rick's and have been following him as the tip of the spear in this fight for seven and a half freaking years. I'm so old. Like he ain't going to take a trip. He ain't going to take like d- Trump's not taking any days off. And the whole like exhaustion, I'll get back to you in the you know January of 24. Uh-uh. Right. Take a nap. Take a week off. But you know what? This fight isn't going to end. It's 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 going to continue. Rick, we thought we always thought that 22 would be the way station of 24. It will be. We just I, I just never thought. And maybe this is my continuing lack of imagination on my own part that he'd literally do it five days later. Now, of course, we thought maybe he'd do it in July or whatever, but he clearly he's going to ride a wave e- either of his own making or of one that the Republicans you know, generate and he'll either take credit for it or he'll blame Mitch McConnell and all the candidates for their you know losses. And in a lot of ways, he's in the best of both worlds because he gets to go out and say something to the Republican base that they deeply believe. It's that Mitch McConnell is worse. He's a worse threat to the Republican Party than Chuck Schumer, that that if only McConnell had listened to me and done what I told him. But the reality is McConnell didn't get a vote in most of these campaigns. McConnell didn't get his person in most of these campaigns. They the, the, the Trump candidates in Georgia and in Arizona and Pennsylvania and Ohio and everywhere else are the ones on the ballot. And yeah. And, and you know, despite his best efforts to try and prop up other people. Right. 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 McConnell. And, I mean, and McConnell, yeah. And McConnell and Rick Scott spent somewhere around $250 million this year um, for a bunch of tie races in States that were should have look, if they had chosen David McCormick in Pennsylvania, this would probably be a, 10 point race they race in the Republican over. favor. Um, if they had chosen, yeah. if they had they, chosen if, some orthodontist from right. Buckhead, Correct. it would be over. Correct. If they had chosen Jane Timken, who nobody knows who she is in Ohio, a, a sort of like standard issue, you know, the, the PSL Ugg boot of the Republican party, totally basic. They would have been, they, they, this would have been a 10 point race because they had plenty of red states where they could have gone easy. They've spent at least $250 million. And who the hell knows where Rick Scott spent the 150 that he blew through. Building a list for his 11th place finish in the Iowa caucuses. Correct. 
Correct. And, then, and, and Rick Scott's future is like Secretary of Transportation. Oh, um, but, but I mean, look, and, and that, that moment I think that we're going to see is Trump will, he will have, he, he will come out and say, my, this is my party. The House is Republican. It is the MAGA Republican Party. And, and he will reassert ownership and dominance over the GOP. And it will, it will be, as you have long predicted, this will be the, the worst night of Kevin McCarthy's life when it should be the best. He will be. Well, but, and, will, but Rick, what, what about the things that you just laid out are, yeah. are incorrect about what Trump would say and assert? No, not, none of them, them are wrong. None of them are wrong. Right. Um, but, but McCarthy has been out, as you, as you reported and you knew, McCarthy's been out for a year saying to major donors, hey, I need you to help me out. Give the NRCC money so that I can get some non-MAGAs in here. Right. So that I can get some some sane people. And guess what? Marjorie Taylor Greene runs the Republican Party now. I mean, think about this, Rick. Marjorie Taylor Greene is approaching the mainstream. She's got a she had a, a you know, for anybody who ventured to read the story in The New York Times magazine, mm-hmm. which my guess is many of her supporters did not. She's on the cover of The New York Times magazine. Yep. Her love life is now fodder for TMZ and for yep. gossip rags. Yep. Right. Like. That's the sign of being a mainstream political figure, not a wackadoo, right? I mean, she should not ever, you know, no one outside of Rome, Georgia should ever want anything to do with her. And now she goes on a stage next to Donald Trump and says, when we take control of the United States House of Representatives, not one more dollar for Ukraine. Right. Right. That's that's Kevin McCarthy's legacy right there is that he thinks he can control these people like he always did when, in fact, she is riding him like a Clydesdale with a bit in his mouth and a saddle on his back. <laughs> That's Actually, exactly right. A Clydesdale's far too strong a horse, like an old nag, like a nag right. headed for the glue factory. He's, he's got a he's got a a broke down old field pony. Exactly. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, look, uh, and I think I think we're, you know the the Senate races for all the noise and the polling in this last week, it is still they're they're like n- no outcome will surprise me in the Senate races. Uh, it's got, right. it, it, it could be a, you know, plus three Republican, or it could be a tie ball game, or it could be a plus two Democrat. I can draw different maps all day long, but yeah, I mean, and it's weird that, you know, there's a, there's a tie race or nearly tied race in, in the state of Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Which I don't think anybody expected. Uh, it looked like it was going to be close in, in Colorado with, uh, Michael Bennett and this guy O'Day. Yeah. But of course, when somebody asked O'Day about Trump, he's like, I just re- I really want to talk about the guy. I just want to run my campaign. And the next mm-hmm. day, Trump comes out and blasts him, and that's which means that game. all those MAGAs on the Western Slope like are going to stay, you yep. know, they'll vote for Boebert and skip the rest. Yep, that's exactly right. But I mean, look, I think I think whatever day it is that he announces it, it is, you know, we've been we've been hearing all the rumblings out of Mar-a-Lago and out of Bedminster for a year and all the, you know. The, the sources that we've been able to develop over time of people that given us pretty accurate information about what's happening mm-hmm. in Trump world beyond the media coverage. And, and it, it, this moment is inevitable folks. It was always coming. It was always going to be here. Uh, you know, I encourage, you know, our, our democratic friends who see him get in, don't pull your hair out and say, Oh God, I'm moving to New Zealand. Just get in the fight. You have to. You don't get an option on it. There's no. There's no second tier, you know, America out there. There's no. There's no substitute for this unless you fight it out. Um, you know, it is going to be a much darker 
world and a much worse place. So, well, look, um, I mean, Rick, you know, but aside from aside from Trump's potential announcement and whatever tour comes after that and whatever campaign comes mm -hmm. after that, you know, Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA and all these other, you know, right wing front great group goons like they've got they've already got events planned through most of December, yeah. right up to Christmas. Right. Yeah. And then maybe they take the first half of January off and they'll be right back at it. CPAC will be around. Right. So like these people, as we keep saying, they never stop. They're well-resourced, right. they're relentless, and they have a plan. And it's not a plan that started like seven years ago when he came down the escalator. It's been, it's been running, Rick, for, mostly to my, in my ignorance, unfortunately, for 60 freaking years. Yeah, right? and, and look, or maybe it, ninety years if you go back to the freaking New Deal, right? It, like it, in a lot of ways, FDR in a lot of ways, you could map socialist. it back to that early conservative opposition to FDR, but you, but you can certainly map the modern iteration back 50, 60 years. Leadership Institute, Morton Blackwell, all these, all these, you know, operational things as they've scaled and scaled and scaled, and I think that out in the field, the Democrats have been increasingly given a, a bucket of cold water in the face. I had a conversation with a Florida Democrat, a very successful operative in the state the other day, who was blown away by just how many bodies the Republicans had had bought, had just paid for, to mm -hmm. go and knock doors out in the world, and to go and make phone calls and send text messages, and they were they they they've built out this highly competent field and direct voter contact operation that I think Democrats have underestimated for a long time. And I think they've tried to get over that with sort of celebrity candidates in some of these places. Or celebrities. And, or celebrities. And unless you do the blocking and tackling, you know, that's the world you and I come from, the blocking and tackling world, yeah. like the, the, the operational details world. And unless they learn to do that, we're going to face elections like this one again, where they, where they don't just lose an earned media battle or a, or a perception battle. But they end up getting spanked on the ground, even though, look, a lot of Democratic volunteers are out there right now this weekend knocking doors. God bless them. Keep at it. But it's going to be the, the, the challenges ahead are not trivial and they're not uh, they're not to be they're not to be minimized, I think, as we as we do a, a serious like post-election scrub of what went right, what went wrong and what we need to do in the future. Well, look, I mean, they, they ultimately and, not, you know, every every Democratic candidate, every Dem Democratic operative, every Democratic activist has to ask themselves, like, do you want to win? Like, yeah. the things you want, some of them reasonably popular, some of them not. If you want to do any of these things, you must win this fight. And if you don't win the fight, then stop worrying about the rest of it because it ain't going to happen. Right. Right. It's just not going to happen. So, like, yeah, you can get yourself wrapped around the axle against like a 5% issue. Right. That you and your, you know, your Twitter sphere or your Mastodon server, as it were. <laughs> Rick, um, right. You know, have decided that is the most important issue of our time. But the truth is, is that everything else is secondary, um, because if the system doesn't work, then none of the things that the system can help, uh, you know, address are, are going to be attended to. And, and I think sometimes it's really hard for our friends to understand that. Um, you know, I, they they look. Maybe they're better people than us. Not a high bar, admittedly. Easy, um, easy, easy lift. At least you and me, as, as far as you and me are concerned. But also, um, but like they have this. You know, like they want to win. They want to win the right way. We've said this a million times. And like, you know, if you go back and you look at the campaigns of people like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, you know, he's hope and change. 
Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton's the man from hope. And mm-hmm. you know what he had? Carville and Stephanopoulos and Axelrod and Messina and all those guys doing? Knifing their opponents on a daily right. basis, right? Relentlessly, remorselessly, right? Pushing old ladies in wheelchairs off the cliff and saying, this is what Paul Ryan wants no to do to grandmother. Right. And, and it's like, if you do that, you can win. Right. Barack Obama wanted to win. Bill Clinton wanted to win. It's right? a They're hard, like, well, I'm not it's, doing I mean, this. I'm not doing this because it's fun. Cause as we know, running for anything is not fun. Certainly not running for president. Right. And, and you know, sort of inside joke in politics folks is sort of you, the Godfather. This is the life we've chosen. Right. And, and if you're going to be in these fights, as Reed said, you know, don't get wrapped around the axle on a 3% issue. You know, I had a, I had a t- conversation with an extraordinarily well-meaning uh, liberal donor and activist last year who absolutely was convinced we could make climate change the center issue of this campaign. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just had to, like, break his heart. I just like, I'm so sorry, but no one's going to vote on that except people you know in Aspen or in, in Brookline, Mass., or in San Francisco or in Seattle. The issues that, that have mattered in this campaign you, have been made to matter in part by the Republican effort that is really smart and determined. Um, and the issues that will matter in 2024 are up to the Democrats right now and up to how they how they turn on a on what it looks like a Republican House of Representatives to come. And it's going to get crazy. Well, Reed, listen, I have taken up enough of your Sunday evening And uh, I appreciate it, brother. And I will be talking to you in our morning call tomorrow. Uh, And we will be, um, we will, we will come back together as a group here in the next 2448. And we'll talk more about what the hell just went on. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Rick. All right. Thanks, Reed. Well, folks, as always, the enemies list likes to get to the point. And the people that have put themselves on the enemies list today are the folks who looked at Joe Biden's heartfelt speech about the future of American democracy that was given on Thursday the 2nd. But a lot of the coverage of the president's speech, which was a heartfelt and passionate and deeply patriotic speech about the risks American democracy and our constitutional republic faces today, way too many people in mainstream journalism treated this event as if it was a joke treated it as if it was irrelevant, treated it like it was a joke, went right back to the horse race bullshit coverage. And the sad part about it is those are the people that are going to be the first up against the wall when we don't have a democracy where free speech is protected, where we don't have a constitutional government where free speech is protected, where we don't have a rule of law where free speech and journalism is protected. They will be the first ones who are shocked that the horse race they're all the same both sides of them that has infected Washington, D.C.'s political culture and infected the coverage of almost everything that happens in that town. They're going to be the ones who are absolutely mortified, like, oh, my God, how did this happen? Oh, we thought it was just a joke. We thought it was a big prank. We thought it was, we thought it was you know, uh, you know, why couldn't Biden have talked about inflation and gas prices? He's covered that a hundred other goddamn times. But the fact that people in the press, frankly, I expect it from the people on the right, And I expect it from a lot of the people on the hyper-progressive side who think Biden should be out talking about seizing the means of production or whatever. But a lot of mainstream journalists really miss the beat on this one. They really miss the fact that our democracy 
our constitutional republic, our country, our way of life, the rules of law that protect every American citizen's sacred right to free speech are going to be deeply and profoundly endangered when authoritarians and uh, and and their entire nationalist cadre, their movement, take over. If you don't think that's serious, and, and you don't think that's a threat, and you don't think that's a problem for America, I will direct you to any number of other historical precedents where people thought, nothing can go wrong here. How could I ever lose my rights? Oh, it's just a joke. Politics is all what is, is what it is. It's just a big inside game. Who ended up screaming on the wall as they were being shoved up against the wall? I have always been for the dear leader. I love the comrade you know, who, who leads our country. This is not something that's trivial. This is not something that you should laugh off. This should have been a centerpiece, a tentpole of this election. It was not for a lot of people. My colleagues and I at the Lincoln Project tried to make it a, a centerpiece of our of our messaging during the election. In fact, the races we really committed to and played in in this election were races in states that we thought were existential to American democracy. So that's why we put a lot of resource and effort into places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where if those states fell, this country's chance of having a free and fair national democratic election, small d, would have been reduced almost to nothing. It's outrageous. It's disgusting. It is an absolute it is an absolute dereliction of the of an understanding that being a journalist in this country isn't just a, it isn't just a right. It's also a privilege that's been protected by a system that you treat lightly now, that you tr- that you laugh off, that you think it's funny. Oh yeah, well Biden just didn't talk enough about gas prices, and that's the real issue. It's an issue, but democracy, if you lose it, is the only issue. Inflation is temporary, as someone said recently. Fascism is forever. So, for a lot of mainstream journalists, get your shit together. You're on the enemies list.